so who among us has a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. We have some. Yes, we do. Truth is, for many of us, a New Year's resolution tends to be a January resolution, right? It's something you do, and then it slowly fades. Uh, for me, one of them, this morning at a, at a terribly early hour before most of you were awake, I decided that I was going to jump into a cold shower, and I paced for 15 minutes building up the courage to do it. You may remember last year preaching a sermon about resilience and how good extreme hots and colds are for your body. And it was a part of the sermon. You may not have been here, but it was part, it made sense at the time. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and go for it. And, and I did it once. Now, a month from now, we'll see, but I did it once. And uh, I hope whatever your resolutions are, that you're able to stick with them. Today, we start a series called Refresh, Rest reflect, recommit. And so I want to begin this morning with a question for you all. What is the entry point for the typical American to connect with the gospel? What is the Western gateway for the average secular person, unchurched person to the gospel? What is it that God teaches what is it that God provides? What is it about Jesus that appeals to the average Westerner? What is it in the teaching of Jesus that connects to the felt needs of our neighbors? In the middle of the last century, that felt need, that felt issue was one of moral guilt. People who didn't know Jesus still had a fairly strong sense of right and wrong. It's been documented by sociologists who studied the time, religious sociologists in particular. And many of the people who deviated away from the church and away from religion couldn't shake the notion still nonetheless that they were not enough, that they had committed errors in their life that were deserving of judgment. This was a sentiment that Billy Graham picked up on and appealed to heavily in his crusades. Some of you old enough to remember. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly and connected the dots of the cross with the felt needs of the time of the American people. We aren't enough, but Jesus is. We've wronged God and we deserve judgment, but Jesus came to endure that judgment on the cross for us. But what about today, generations later? What about in a culture in which there is no underlying understanding of right and wrong? People don't agree on it. Many people don't experience the kind of moral guilt that existed 60 plus years ago. Don't get me wrong. Plenty of you experience all kinds of guilt. But not the same kind of moral guilt in our society that used to be so prevalent. When I was in seminary, I listened to a guest speaker. He's a church planner in Europe. And he had done ministry all over Europe. At the time, he was in England. And Europe has become heavily secularized, even more so than here. And he was speaking to us, future pastors in New England and, and, and beyond. And he was talking about the effective connection point he had found for the gospel in a post-church world. And he listed all the Christianese things that people say that don't mean anything to their secular friends. And then he pointed out one thing that in his ministry, nearly everyone can relate to. Nearly everyone is exhausted. If not physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, people are busy, they're tired, they're worn out, they're anxious, they're depressed, they're stressed. And Jesus promises rest. He says, come, all who are heavy laden, give me your burdens, I will give you rest. We're gonna look at a bunch of scriptures that address all kinds of rest throughout this sermon. What if one of your greatest evangelism tools 
amongst your friends and your coworkers is of all things, a rested life. What if in a world full of stress and worry, our lives looked a little bit different? The series is refresh and today we look specifically at rest. And we're gonna look at three different kinds of rest. The first one is physical rest. Well, in the Old Testament, it was mainly physical rest, but this idea of rest from doing, work rest. Next, emotional, psychological rest in a world full of stress and worry. And then third and finally, spiritual rest. That's where we're going today. I also want to be very clear that as we've talked a lot about mental health, even in the past year from the platform, and people have shared about their own particular kind of circumstances, that we understand that for some people, there are biochemical issues, sicknesses that require medical attention beyond what we're discussing today. I personally have sat across from a neurologist who looking at brain scans has told me I am biochemically, neurologically predisposed to depression. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, meaning we don't want to not talk about stress and anxiousness and worry at all. Just because I'm predisposed to depression doesn't mean it's okay for me to do all kinds of things that make it worse. I may be predisposed to anxiousness. That doesn't mean it's okay for me to do all the kinds of things and fill my life with things that make anxiousness worse. And so today we're gonna talk about those practical things, normal habits and practices, the things that feed what I like to call anti-rest or anti-peace, because we gotta talk about it, because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So first, physical rest or work rest, or work rest from the to-dos. In other words, what does it look like to rest from the doing? We're gonna get to some scriptures about Sabbath in the Old Testament in a moment, because in the Old Testament, what we have here, most of the work was physical. The physical labor is what generated their livelihoods. Today, that's not always the case. So I just wanna acknowledge that up front. I get that. The principles will still apply. But today, either way, this first point is gonna address the constant need in our world for you to go, 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 go. A problem any of us can relate to. I shared these stats with our group leaders in the fall. Here's some interesting statistics. This is addressing some of the problem. Dr. Shore, professor of sociology out of Boston College found between 1970 and the early 2000s, over 30 years, the average American added 200 working hours to their year. So over the course of those 30 years, a full month of work was added to the average American's year. All the technological advances hasn't done much for your rest. Seven in 10 adults say their work-related stress affects personal relationships, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Emma Sapala of Yale University found in her research, 55% of Americans didn't use all their vacation and 41% check into work while they're away. And even though in our country we have the lowest vacation days in the Western world, our use of them has declined for the last 15 years. We got a rest problem, don't we? So either way, I believe we have something to take away as we look at the Old Testament from this idea of Sabbath. The Old Testament practice of stopping once a week. And we're not gonna get into legalism. We're gonna look at principles. Sabbath is mentioned in creation long before the law was given to Moses. It's included in the Ten Commandments. So if you're an established Christian, you know your Ten Commandments. Interesting for most people, Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that we consider purely optional and extra. 
under the law. If you violated the Sabbath, you were put to death. So for Israel in the Old Testament, it was kind of a big deal, but why? And so, well, this is the Old Testament. Well, Christians, we are not under the law. There are two principles worth our attention that I do believe will build some health into our uh, respect for what rest looks like and what we were designed for. So Exodus 31 is where we start. Verse 15. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day, there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord, set apart, different. That's the word holy, consecrated. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. Some of you busy buddies would have struggled massively as an Israelite. The Israelites must observe the Sabbath, celebrating it throughout their generations as a permanent covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the Israelites. For... Into our reason. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Deuteronomy 5. We're going to read the second passage and then we'll look at the two principles. Shared language, but different. You'll see. Verse 12. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded. You were to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock. Even the animals had to rest, church. Or the resident alien who lives within your city gates so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. And here's our principle. Here's our reason. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So God says, treat Sabbath differently, holy, set apart. And then he gives us two reasons, two principles to think on. And you can preach a whole sermon on Sabbath. This is just our first point. The first principle is this. As you read Exodus, stop, why? Because God stopped. Stop, why? Because he made it all. Stop, because everything is his. Stop, because the mountains you love to hike, the foliage you enjoy in the fall, the beautiful snow-laden trees, the beaches you frequent during the summer. The list goes on. Stop, because he made it, and then he stopped. God programmed a weekly rhythm into the life of his people and they would be actively reminded within this weekly rhythm that it's his, that it's all his, that the beautiful world that he created is the gift, that he is the giver. And how often do we need to be reminded that the giver is more important than the gift, at least weekly? So stop, not here to be legalistic, but how much benefit would you, perhaps your kids, have from a weekly practice that completely upsets the rhythms of our crazy, busy, busy, consumeristic, extracurricular, laden, obsessed lives to engrave such a concept on our souls. Stop. Why? Because it's his. Because he made it. Second principle out of Deuteronomy. Stop. Because you can depend on him. Stop. Because God is the strength that gets you through the circumstances that you don't think you can get through. He says the Sabbath is a reminder of who brought them out of Egypt. But what's the connection there? Have you, have you connected those dots before? That you're supposed to stop doing stuff in order to remember what God has done in the past. But when you get into a rhythm of working hard and providing for yourself or your family, there becomes a temptation to look at all you've done, to look at the life you've built, the kingdom that you've built, and to think in pride, I did that. 
to think about all the hard circumstances you've been through and to look and say, I made through that. I grinded through that. I did it. And he wanted them to look back at their delivery out of Egypt and while ceasing to work, while experiencing a time of stopping to realize and to remember, God did it, not them. It was hard, but God did it. It seemed hopeless, but God did it. It was impossible, but God did it. And the people of Israel had to spend a day not working, a day not doing the checklist, a day not hitting all the lingering things that have been nagging at them, a day in which they had to stop. For many of us, the most precious resource we have, you'd say is time. So you gotta spend it well. You have to work hard and get things done because to use your time wisely for us, wisely equals productively. God wanted his people to use their time wisely and for him wisely meant stopping. Weekly, remember, God did that. I stop on the seventh day because I trust because of God, enough can be done in six days. Stop, why? Because you can depend on God. Again, for either you or your kids, what would the power of such a principle in your home and in the rhythms of your life Stop, why? Because it's his. Stop, because internalizing, living out the truths of who God is are so much more important than your to-do list. Now we're not, again, trying to be legalistic. I do believe that stopping looks different for all of us. We're no longer under the law, but these principles are so powerful for us today. What does this look like in my own home? We've wrestled with this in the midst of a world that is very busy, very chaotic and makes a lot of demands of us. We share this again with group leaders in the fall. But for us in our home, once a week, we gather around the dinner table and after dinner we have dessert once a week and, and that dessert is our Sabbath dessert. And, and as the kids sit with the treats in front of them, whatever it is, we have a back and forth that we say because we're trying to ingrain this and engrave this on their hearts. And we, we say, Sabbath is all about, and the kids say, rest. And then we say, and we rest when we, and the kids, the ones who can talk, say, stop disconnect, worship, and delight. And we talk each week about how when we delight in things, that points us ultimately to the delight we have in our God because these things are just temporary. They're not ultimate. And that's a weekly rhythm for us. And it's different from what the Israelites did and it's different from what you did. But for the time that we set in our home, there's no chores, there's no homework, there's no email. We're not allowed to do, do, do. We stop. And we've had to say a no to a lot of things that the world says is, are important in order to stop. We want our kids to know the importance of rest. That will look different for you, but I encourage you to think, what does it look like to stop? What is resting from the to-dos? We have these things in our lives that creep in, call them anti-rest practices, anti-peace practices. And they're different for all of you, some of them are larger than others, but you gotta be aware of the things that compete for your rest. One of them, notifications. Shut them off. At least once, once a week, just try it. The Facebook notifications, the Instagram notifications, the email notifications, the text notifications. How did people survive relationally? How did people work without notifications constantly invading their pocket 30 years ago? Somehow they did it. Ask your grandparents, they'll tell you. Stop the notifications. Maybe that's yours. Some of you go, go, go. In order to go, 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 you fill your body with lots of caffeine. Yes, I said caffeine. 
as someone who does drink coffee, some of you don't get very good rest because of how much coffee you drink. In fact, you sleep for eight hours and the sleep you get is very low quality because of the caffeine still lingering in your body. Some of, some of us spend so much time on screens before bed. You're not supposed to an hour before bed and it wrecks the melatonin in your brain and you don't get good rest. What are we doing? What are the anti-rest, anti-peace practices that we're engaging in, that we weren't designed for? Now, if you do all those things and people tell you that you are so peaceful, right? You're so patient. You're not irritable. You were just so rested. That's fine, right? Well, probably I could find a 95-year-old who smoked a pack a day and never got cancer. Like maybe that's you when it comes to caffeine. But we got to think about what are the things that we do that build into the exhaustion. And in 2023, what are things you can get rid of? Next, two, emotional, psychological rest. Some stats for you, church. According to the American Institute of Stress, 33% of people report feeling extreme stress. 77% of people experience stress that affects their physical health. 73% of people have stress that impacts their mental health. 48% of people have trouble sleeping because of stress. What about worry and anxiousness? The Anxiety and Depression Association of America. According to them, 40 million adults suffer from some sort of anxiety disorder. 40 million. And they write this, and I appreciate how they put this. These are complex, resulting from a combination of risk factors, including genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and life events. I mentioned my, my own sake, my own brain chemistry. I talked about that earlier. In recent history, the number of teens experiencing anxiousness has exploded with 32% of kids aged 13 to 18 experiencing an anxiety disorder. What does all this mean? If you are not stressed out, if you are not anxious, you are the exception. If you go to work and you feel at peace, if you are at home and you feel at peace, you are not normal. Isn't that a little depressing? Man, but these are just stats and we are real people living real lives. And we see this in every aspect of our life. We've never been more worried or more stressed and often both of those things saturated in fear accompanied by anxiousness. These are increasingly baked into our ways of life. We worry about everything. I have a few different examples of how worry and stress have kind of worked their way into our world. Um, recently listening to a book called um, uh, How to Raise Adults, which I'll take all the advice I can get. Uh, this book is, is full of fascinating information. One thing I found very interesting is that in 1983, a movie, Adam, spread the story of the kidnapping and murder of John Walsh's son. In the 1980s, stats began to fill the news about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids kidnapped every year. Faces appeared on milk cartons. And so a new concept was born called Stranger Danger. In the 50s, there were elementary schools who required in order for you to get into first grade, you had to be able to walk a few blocks to buy a quart of milk on your own and come home as a five-year-old. It was required. Now you go to jail for neglect. Why? Well, because of the rise of this thing called stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. Don't let them talk to you. It would take years for the false information given to the public to be corrected. 
the fact that 0.01% of the kidnappings were actually kidnappings by strangers. 99.9% of the statistics that were cited in these news cycles were kids simply wandering off or in the custody of a non-custodial family member. It was too late. The myth of stranger danger was born. And since the mid-1980s, parents and their kids have been more stressed about strangers than any other time in history because of it, including myself. I was raised by two parents that were from the police department, so I got it double, trust me. It's invaded our schools. For some, the never-ending rat race of achievements, test scores, grades is the ultimate arbiter of a young person's worth and purpose and hope. There's nothing that can derail the plan of your life more, that can squash your ultimate dreams than a C plus. It doesn't take much for the stress of school to translate into the stress of work at the core of our identity as adults being our role, our title, our rank, whatever it is that we can produce with our hands or with our minds. Finally, this worry and this stress has invaded our recreation and entertainment in ways like never before in the last few decades. The news is relentless. For decades, the news channels operated at a loss, okay? They were not incentivized to profit. So all you uh, folks who remember Walter Cronkite, that smooth voice, when he brought the news, is different today. They've increased, increasingly prioritized profits, meaning that the news is all about giving you stories you will click on. And the stories you click are the stories that are most likely to make you angry or afraid. People don't click on news stories that make you confident and hopeful. You just don't. The news is instant and incessant. Social media, while well, useful for so many things, in Mexico, when I lived there for a few years, being able to keep in touch with people from home. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. However, the use of social media has grown more and more prevalent and the comparison and dissatisfaction that it breeds. We've seen these problems invade our lives. We've seen them lead to lots of mental health issues with our teens. In Matthew 6, Jesus addresses people, people that have far less than we do, who are by our standards would be considered living in abject poverty, people who living under the oppression of a foreign empire, people who had a lot to be worried about, a lot to be afraid of. And what does he say? Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a moment to his lifespan by worrying? You know, the truth is many of us have taken away days or years from our life from worrying, haven't we? How do we do this? Paul adds something profound in Philippians 4. He says, don't worry about anything. There's no except there. It's just anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind, guard, actively guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is our problem, this is my problem. Our lives just aren't built around going to God first in these kinds of circumstances. I gotta tell you, as I was preparing this and thinking through and reflecting on this, 
I naturally, it mentioned earlier uh, that, that association about in their personality. In my personality, I can't blame that. Like, I get very stressed out. I'm a planner. I know I got planners in the room. And so I got a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. And when plan D goes wrong, there's E to fall back on. Like, a worrier by default, things got to go to plan. Several years ago, when I was living in Massachusetts, we were expecting our first child. And I was a full-time student in seminary. My wife was about to step away from her job. She was the sugar mama at the time. I had three part-time jobs, and I had been told by one of them that I would not only be getting significantly more hours, but a significant raise going into the new year. And we needed it. It was the plan. It's what I was relying on. And the boss brought me in for a conversation just before the year turned over and told me that what I had expected was not going to happen. I walked out of that meeting seeing a $20,000 deficit for the following year. My wife being almost seven months pregnant. You ever have a moment, you're so stressed, you feel like crying, but the tears don't come. And that stress intermingled with anger and frustration. I remember getting into my car, sitting there, wide-eyed with a single phrase repeating in my head, what am I going to do? You know the first question we ask when we get stressed out about life. What am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to get out of this? I don't think those are bad questions, but Paul in Philippians is saying, you don't go to you first, you go to God. In my, in my marriage, my wife is often that person. When I get really stressed out, she's the one that says, have you prayed yet? No. Get off my back, I'll pray later. What is it about God, church, that melts worry and stress into peace? As a chronic worrier, as a planner. Paul wants the people of God, when things don't go to plan, to look to God. I have my mom as a wonderful example of this and as someone to emulate. She has scripture all around her home, prayers written everywhere. I've seen my mom over the last 15 years endure some really, really hard economic and relational issues. And from afar often because I've moved a lot. And in my conversations with her, when they come up, she's someone who's just been a rock. God's got it. Everything's gonna be okay. She's a prayer. In that prayer, she gets perspective. You know what that perspective is when we go to God? I'll tell you, in all the stressful situations I've endured as a student, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a worker, as someone responsible for others, of all the time I've spent worrying about things not working out, you know what all those things have in common? And this isn't meant to make light of anyone's difficult circumstances here because we all endure different things, hard things. But this is what they have in common. At 10 million years from now, when I look back at each of those moments, never once will I say, dang, I definitely wasn't stressed out enough. Dang, I really wasn't worried enough. I mean, I was kind of worried, but it should have been like, you get sick worried. Someone came up to me in between services and shared with me that after their young child having to go through surgery and some major health scares. They said, you know what? I look back, I couldn't, not one moment will I look back and say I should have been more stressed. Some would push back. Wasn't Jesus ever stressed? I found this interesting. I posed a question to a school I was uh, teaching at in Boston. And I asked a question on this topic. 
When is stress or worry not sinful? I wanted to hear what the students would say. And one of them raised their hand after thinking for a few seconds and said, what about the garden? What about the garden of Gethsemane before Jesus went to the cross? You see in Luke 22, it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, but in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground, that in his body, he felt the physical stress so much so that his sweat was like blood. What's the difference? The difference is on the one hand between bearing the weight of what you know will work out and worrying that things won't work out. That's the difference. And our emotional and psychological rest and building up lives that fortify those things, we have to similarly stop the anti-rest practices. Your brain, wasn't, your brain was not desired to consume news more than once or twice a day, okay? So if you're a news junkie, stop it! 2023, people will like you more, I promise. I promise. If social media consumes you, get off of it. You are supposed to be the Lord of your phone. Your phone is not supposed to be the Lord of you. Turn off the notifications, get it off your phone. Do fasts, do what you gotta do. If your home stresses you out because it's full of so much stuff, because we live in a materialistic, consumeristic world, get rid of the stuff. If your home is too big for you and that stresses you out, get a smaller home. You ain't gonna find anywhere in here where God says you gotta have a super wealthy consumeristic life. If there's things in your world that are adding to the stress and the worry, get them out. If your kids have too many extracurricular activities and it dominates your life and it adds to the stress and the worry and at the end of the day, it just teaches them the same, say no, that's okay. Sometimes it'll be for their benefit. You gotta stop the anti-rest and the anti-peace. Third and finally, spiritual rest. What is it, church, that gives us an overwhelming reassurance that in eternity, everything is gonna be okay? That in eternity, I'm good. That in eternity, I'm his. What is it, church, that removes the stress of our failures, the weight of our baggage, the burden of our sin? I may have said in the intro that many in our secular world don't have the sense of moral guilt that was prevalent generations ago, but it still remains that many people who walk through our doors feel like their mistakes are disqualifying. They feel the frustration of falling short. They recall the outbursts of anger and impatience with their friends or kids or spouse. The problems of gossip or greed or pride in their life, the sexual sin, the addiction, the list goes on and on. Many come through our doors with the weight of the laws on their shoulders, their sense of self characterized by nothing more than condemnation. And to these people, Jesus offers rest. In Hebrews chapter four, the author recalls the rest that the people were pursuing in the promised land, but it was not the fullness of rest. There is actually an eschatological rest. That's a fancy word, eschatos, Greek meaning last or final days, an eschatological rest, an, an ultimate rest, a final rest that those who believe in Jesus are moving towards, that we'll get to participate in. It is the inheritance, it is the promise that we are guaranteed in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth but it's not meant to linger merely in the future. Jesus gives us glimpses of it in the present. In Matthew 11, what I quoted at the beginning of this sermon, 
In verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke. We know that the yoke of the Pharisees or the yoke of the rabbis was, was the weight of the law and it was hard. Jesus says, take up my yoke, learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Craig Blomberg, he's a New Testament scholar. He comments on this. I think this is fantastic. He writes, Jesus's requirements are no less stringent than those of the Jewish teachers, but they can be accomplished more readily because of the strength Christ provides through the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not escape the hard life, but he could experience rest and refreshment in the midst. Christians are not promised freedom from illness or calamity, but they may experience God's sustaining grace so that they are not crushed or driven to despair. The rest Jesus offers his disciples enables them to overcome a certain measure of fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and meaninglessness in the joy and peace of God's very presence in Jesus Christ. To paraphrase that in one sentence, living the life Jesus has for you isn't easy, but it is less burdensome than bearing the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we do life together, church. This is why when we fall, we help each other up. This is why when we fail, we confess to one another and repent. This is why the testimony of our teen challenge guys, teen and adult challenge, is so powerful. This is why the ministry of Celebrate Recovery here on Monday nights is so crucial. Because when people gather Monday nights for Celebrate Recovery, they are honest about their brokenness and their dependence on Jesus. And in that kind of community, you have a recipe for healing. You have a recipe for true rest. To close, church, I'd like to encourage you to reflect on your own life. When outsiders look in, when they look at your life, do they see, and I have to ask this of myself, when people look at me, do they see someone who worships a prince of peace? Or do they see someone who worships a prince of chaos? Do they see someone who worships a prince of busyness, a prince of stress, a prince of worry? We gotta be honest when we ask that question. Talk with someone else about what needs to change. Do it in the context of community, friends, family, kids. My prayer for us as a church is that one, we can learn to stop. And in learning to stop, we can be reminded it's all his and that we can depend on him. Two, that we can disconnect from the fear-mongering news, from the anxiety-causing social media and everything else. And three, that we can rest in the work Jesus did for us on the cross because he proclaimed it is finished. And that means that there's nothing for us to add. Now today is, is special as we get to celebrate communion together. Uh, I believe ushers are going to come forward with communion. You can actually bring one to me, Steve, because I totally left mine down there on my seat. This is something we do once a month to remember, to be reminded of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thank you, Steve. We can contemplate being unified with the Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, big C church, who's been doing this for centuries and centuries in remembering the work of Jesus on the cross. Something that we do not add to, a victory that we get to participate in because he lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we deserve so that we could have the life that we don't deserve. And so Paul writing a letter to 1 Corinth, he says this. 
He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't take it yet. We're gonna have just a moment of silence. I want you to pray. I want you to have a moment with God. If you have something to confess, you have something to get off your heart, do it now. Let's have a moment of silence before we take, take the bread. Go ahead and take the bread. He continues, in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for the blood that you spilled on our behalf, for the sacrifice you were as our substitution. As we do this, as we remember, as we are reminded, may we not take it lightly or for granted. Take the cup. 